this point, the children are dismissed to their appropriate ministries, to Children's Church. And I'll ask that you turn in the book of Judges to chapters 17 and 18. We are entering into the rarely read and almost never preached parts of the Bible, <laughs> the end of the book of Judges. And if you've never read this before, it will feel a little bit like your car is broken down in a bad neighborhood, and you're going to see things that you wish you didn't, and say, what was the point of that? And that really is the point, is it's going to feel meaningless because you're supposed to ache and long for God's king, to, for God to rule and reign as king, to, that as you see the world as it should not be, long for a king who has the power and desire to, to remake all things uh, for our good. And I'll just give you a, a, a warning for next week as we're, chapters 19 and 20 are probably some of the most disturbing passages in the Bible. And so I know kids are going to be in there. I'm going to preach as if my kids are part of the the audience, but we are going to read it, and it's just going to be retelling a re rehash of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but it's there. I just, I'm just, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to talk about it carefully. But I'm just letting you know it's coming. But let's let's read Judges 17 and 18, and we'll pray. This is God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal, a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, who sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And, and as, he as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, 
For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to go spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place, and what is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me, has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. For God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. And on this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish to the, said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up, and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come up with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, 
Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laisha first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given to us in love. Let's pray. Lord, I ask now that you would come and revive our souls. You would, as your word tells us, make wise the simple and bring us joy as we look to see Jesus, who is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And so I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. And just come and teach us as we seek to follow Jesus in a world where everything is so subjective. And so we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question. I mean, that was kind of a marathon run with a whole bunch of what was that for? But the, the question is actually in your bulletin in the reflection. It, it, it asks this question. What if the vast majority of our questions about Christianity with our neighbors are not really about our faith at all? But what if we are so accustomed to thinking about our beliefs in terms of personal preferences, like sports teams or favorite brands, that when we try to share the gospel with someone, neither of us are actually thinking and talking about the existence of a real and loving God who died on the cross for our sin? It's, a, it's an intriguing question. Right? It's, it's asking, do you, do you take your faith and see it as just describing reality? Or do you see Jesus as just one option that works for you? And in the text in Judges and in the world we live, that's, that's how we think about spirituality, increasingly so. That spirituality, whatever God you worship, is, is up to you. Right? If you like the Yankees, if you like... The Phillies, it doesn't really matter. It's your choice. I mean, we might, you know, we might pick on each other, but really it's all preference, and we treat religion the same way. And so the conclusion of Judges is here to warn us by using Israel's example against doing that, to warn us against making faith subjective, to warn us against making Jesus um, less than who he is. That's true. Eventually, to convince you that Jesus is the truest truth, if I could put it that way. Because we are in the midst of the end of the book of Judges. It, it's what we've been saying all along. There are two introductions. Uh, there are two conclusions. And in, in the middle were the, were the 12 judges, six major and six minor. 
And the end of this is kind of the aftermath, or looking at life on the ground. How did Israel lose their faith? Well, this is what it looks like. So chapter 17 and 18 in the conclusions that we just read, right? The, the boring story of Micah, Mom, and the Levite. And then you have this bigger picture in chapter 18 of the Danites. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion would be chapters 19 to 21. It's going to sound like we're back in Sodom and Gomorrah, except we're in Israel, who's become completely pagan. But the, re- the repeated refrain over and over again in the end of this book is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Those are the bookends. 17.6, which we read, and then the very, that's the very last line of the book, and it just ends. 21.25. So everything in between, and it keeps reminding you there is no king, there is no king. Everybody's just doing whatever they want. Religion and morality among the people of God have become completely subjective, which should sound scarily relevant to us here in the 21st century. This is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone's doing what is right for them. Right? I mean, how many times have you heard that where you have those conversations about trying to talk about Jesus and someone will say, well, there is no, we can't, we can't really know the truth. That what's true for you may not be true for someone else. I mean, I've had those conversations that one plus one may be two for you, but what if one plus one is three for someone else? And that's really the question. What is the big deal about morality and religion being subjective. And, and the scriptures don't leave that to our imagination. We have real examples of what happens when everyone is doing whatever they want and God doesn't intervene. And so, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to look at it. This is really interesting, the way you read the conclusion. This is just a lens through which to read it. Because in the, the middle of the book, when God is saving... The repeated refrain over and over again is, Israel is doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? In the conclusion, it says, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. You see how this flips it on its head. It's, it's reversing it. That what we've been studying all along so far has been God's people rebelling, running away from God's perspective, looking down on Israel. Now you're going to come down on earth where Israel is, and they're saying, we're fine, I don't see what the big deal is, but we already know God has declared what they're doing is evil. And so, that's what we're going to do, as, as look at this. What is it, what does subjective religion look like from our perspective? And then, how, how are we saved from it? And our, so our, our passage, if you can, I have the outline, but we're going to look at ordinary evil, uh, just the effect of subjective religion, religion that, that works, and hopefully this will get you to long for religion that is real and true, as real as true as we are in this room. So let's start with ordinary evil as we look at the overview here. Let's look at Micah. Micah's name is dripping with irony. This is a helpful detail. Micah means who is like Yahweh implying that there is no God like Yahweh, that he is the one true living God, and there is no other God like the Lord. Except this particular Micah clearly doesn't believe it. 
He doesn't believe the Lord is true. Uh, he is one option among many. And nor is this Micah a likable guy, right? He steals from his mom. He's not somebody you're going to trust to date your daughter. He steals a lot of money from his mom. The only reason he gives it back is because his mom uttered a curse, probably in his ears knowing he did it, but we don't really know. But either way, his only motivation for, for coming back and doing the, the right thing is fear of consequences. He doesn't want the gods to be mad at him. He's, he's, he doesn't want to be cursed. So he gives the money back. Micah's mom, she's an enabler. She just says, all right, well, blessed, may you be blessed by the Lord. She invokes a blessing when he's done, done something that is worthy of cursing. <laughs> right? And she's, she's just, that's how she is. And then she makes this promise to, to give all the money back to the Lord, and she only gives 200 pieces of it. So in order to break one of the commandments, right? She, so she gives 200 pieces of silver to break the second commandment, to make an image of Yahweh, something God himself clearly said, don't do. Don't attempt to make the big, transcendent, great and glorious God into something created, because it won't be real. It won't be true. And then you look at Micah again, and Micah just takes that gift and adds it to his collection, right? He collects gods like other people collect comic books or baseball cards. He's got an ephod, he's got a breastplate, I mean, you could hear the repetition as we read it. It was over and over again. He just has a pile of gods, a pile of images. He, and he has a shrine. And he has the authority, self-given authority, invested in him by him <laughs> to ordain a priest. And when he finds a better option, his son gets demoted, the Levite gets, gets uh, installed, and now he ends with that haunting statement, now I know the Lord will bless me because I have a Levite, because I'm doing this kind of right. <laughs> we know he's doing it wrong, but he sees nothing wrong with it, and that's the point. Right? And so, notice there's silence from the narrator. They don't give commentary on this at all. No, and there's silence from the Lord. There's no commentary from God on what he thinks of this. So you're supposed to evaluate it in light of some of the other scriptures. Uh, but that's the point. In all of this, Micah, the mom, the Levite are just living their lives in their own subjective little worlds. And it seems harmless. It seems like nothing's really that big of a deal as you read chapter 17. Chapter 18, it'll get uglier. But you, got, you have someone who isn't perfect, but who is? You have somebody, I mean, who hasn't stolen pocket change from their parents? Uh, who hasn't confessed and then done the right thing because you're scared of getting caught. I mean, that's kind of how people live. That's how we teach morality. Uh, don't steal from your boss because you're going to pr go to prison. Right? That's, that's how we teach morality these days. But Micah is a just an ordinary guy who's attempting to please the Lord. But everything we know about the passage and what's come before, what he's doing, what the mom's doing, what the Levite's doing, it's all evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? And that's, that's what I want to try and convince you and what, what Judges is showing you. Is evil is much more ordinary and mundane and seemingly harmless at first than we tend to give it credit for. It's just ordinary people living ordinary lives, trying to be generically spiritual, trying to 
trying to get blessing in their lives from wherever you can get it because you just want to you want to have a prosperous life that's human you don't want to suffer and spirituality is just a, a thing on the side to help me get what I want and to us that looks right in our eyes it looks upright but because what we've already talked about in the eyes of the Lord that's actually what sends the whole world in this downward spiral because sin seems so ordinary, we don't see the big deal. We can't see the big deal because what we do seems good in our own eyes. Right? I mean, you look at this, it's everybody in these passages just focused solely on their own tiny claustrophobic wants, needs, and concerns. And in their subjective world, Yahweh is just one option among many that the maker of heaven and earth, the one who shook Mount Sinai, the one who gave the Ten Commandments, the God who is an all-consuming fire, who is the God of God, King of kings, to him alone belongs the glory. Micah says, you know, that God, he can, I can just put him in my pocket now. He's part of my collection. I can get his blessing if I do the right thing. It's idolatry. And Micah's mother is the same way. Right? I mean, both, both of them working together, they're just tag-teaming to tame the God who is an all-consuming fire who cannot be tamed because they don't see the God as real and they're not interacting with the real God. The maker of the cosmos has been shrunk to the size of their ordinary concerns, their ordinary lives. That's what sin does. And they can't see it. And so here's, here's the teaching Sin, according to the scriptures and pictured for you here, is really simple and much more nefarious than it looks. It's just a heart turned in on itself. And it's not always that ugly. Sometimes it's going to seem like it's not that big of a deal. Run-of-the-mill selfishness. Give, I'll show you this from Deuteronomy, which gives... Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 16. It tells you that Moses warned that this would happen to God's people. So Deuteronomy 29, 16, God says, Beware, lest you find among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So that when they hear God's words, he then blesses himself and says, I'll be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. Did you hear it? <laughs> it's saying, Beware, Lest there's some among you who hear the good news of the gospel, what God speaks to you and tells you what to do, the God who dwells with you, who is holy, beware you hear all that and you assume you are safe and then continue to do whatever you want because your heart is stubborn. And the point that Moses makes is that it's a root that will only bear poisonous and bitter fruit. You can't see it because it's under the ground but you can see the effects of it. And that's what we're seeing played out in Judges 17 and 18. Uh, people just turned it on themselves like ordinary people like us. Augustine summarized the teaching this way, the, the great theologian. He says, human nature, because of our sinful nature, is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards our own purposes and enjoys them, it also uses God in order to get those good gifts. And, he says, it also fails to see it. 
that fails to see that we are so wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeking all these things, even God, simply for ourselves. It's bleak, but it's honest. <laughs> and that's what Judges 17 is here to get to stir your imagination to say when you lose the idea of there is spiritual reality, religion just becomes something that you use for you, not for any other purpose. Right? And that's what leads to all the problems in chapter 18, chapter 19. It's going to fall apart. It's going to circle the drain and gets even worse. So, how do you apply that? I mean, it's, it's just cautioning you and I. This is written for us as the church to be warned against doing this. Recognizing that's the world we live in and that's the pressure. That we are continually pressured to think, surely God will give me what I want because my wants aren't that bad. And the scriptures turn around and say, sin is me turned in on me, me being obsessed with me and my wants. There's a God out there, there's a king. You need a God who is true and real to tell you what to do. Because otherwise, it's all about you and me. Right? And it just looks so ordinary. That's the deceptive and the seductive part of it. C.S. Lewis puts this in a graphic way. He says, you know, we expect evil to be this ugly, hideous thing, but evil masquerades itself as something freeing. Uh, the, he says, the real mark of hell is actually a sleepless, unsmiling concentration on ourselves. Understand, he says, that hell is a place where everyone is perpetually and continually concerned only about our own dignity and our own advancement, where everybody always has a complaint and is stuck living in the deadly seriousness of self-importance. And you see in the theme here, right, that for Micah, the mom, and the Levite, it's all about them. And that's what sin does in ordinary ways. It's imperfect people with boots on the ground, unable to see see what they really look like. And Judges is here as a mirror to show us what that is. That we need more than our good intentions. Right. And I know this goes against every modern way of thinking about God, that we need a God who is king, and we need a God who is real, and we need morality to be true. That we need a true truth to, to come and tap us on the shoulder and say that's not how things ought to be. Because most, most of us and our neighbor, we don't like the idea, this is what my sin does, I don't like the idea that God is creator and I am created and he can do whatever he wants with me. And I should obey him simply because I am the clay and he is the potter. Because this is what our modern world does. This is what a subjective world does. We ask this question, why would God make me feel not at peace with something that I want that doesn't seem like it's that harmful. Right. I mean, how many times have we had that, those moments of, I don't feel guilty right now, so it can't be that bad. <laughs> I feel at peace with something the Bible for, that God himself forbids. Surely the Lord will prosper me because I went to church last week. <laughs> because I have a, a decent sense of morality. I, I'm a kind person. Right. See, a, a God, this is what I want to convince us, a God who makes us feel at peace, the God that Micah worships, the God who is not real, 
A God who makes me feel at peace no matter what I do, who is just the blessing to bless me what I, on what I do, that's a God who's made in my image. <laughs> An image of God in my mind that I want to be real that isn't real. See, Judges 17 is completely subjective. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and in those days there was no king in Israel. Do you wrestle with these thoughts? <laughs> right? I mean, that's really, this is what I'm trying to get you to wrestle with, is God is real. That he is the creator, everything you see is real, and so that everything he speaks is then real, and it's, it's helping you see the world as it really is. And especially when it comes to, to, to knowing him as he commanded, and then doing what he says as he commanded. It's what Ted Koppel, the longtime nightlight anchor, said a long time ago at Duke University. Maybe some of you remember this. But he says, look, truth in its purest form is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. That what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They were the ten commandments. And so when you're talking about morality, you should do the right thing because it is the right thing, not simply because you're scared of the consequences. Hmm. So, this is ordinary evil, where we're just stuck on ourselves, uh, looking at ourselves, unable to see outside of our own subjectivity. That's the point of Micah 17, or not Micah 17, Judges 17 with Micah, Mom, and the Levite. You're left with these people doing what they want, and it doesn't seem like there's consequences until you get to chapter 18. Right? So point two. Here's the second half of the story where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now it's, it's moving from a family level to a tribal level. And everyone's creating their own purpose in this world and adding their spirituality to give them meaning to try and manipulate their world to get good things. And you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Why are you Christians so afraid? This is what our friends ask. Why are you Christians so afraid of life being subjective? Why can't we as a society just agree to be kind to our neighbors and do whatever we want? Because it works. That's what chapter 18 is for. <laughs> to show you there's a reason we lock our doors at night. Because right? the, the Danites in chapter 18, you have a whole tribe doing the exact same things that Micah do, doing whatever they want, what is upright in their own eyes. And they have the the wisdom to ask for God's blessing, but look at what the priest says. Go in peace, for this journey is under the eye of the Lord. Do you hear the irony? I mean, that's, everything you do is under the eye of the Lord. They just interpret God seeing them to say, we can do what we want now. Right. And so the Danites take God seeing them to go take Laish as blessing, even though they are doing what is evil. Right? So look what they do. You follow the story. They choose a home for themselves. God had already told them where to go. Go kick out the people who are sacrificing children and killing innocents. Now the Danites don't look in the promised land. They go up way north. That's where Laish is. They leave the promised land and pick on a city that has no defenses, that it has no backup, that is unsuspecting, innocent, and, and generally, you know, they're, they're human, but they're not, they're not part of the plan. Right? And they act just like God's people of old. They send spies, 
Sounds like Jericho. Uh, they go in and say it's very good. Sounds like Eden. <laughs> but then they violently take the city, Laish, and harm a whole bunch of innocents doing exactly what the pagans were doing that God is so upset about. They call evil good, and then they throw God under the bus and says, God has given you this place. It's not good. And then the, the icing on the top is to set up their own religion. And they just steal it. <laughs> they just take everything Micah has, the priest, the household gods. And when Micah says, what are you doing? They say, well, go home, or we'll kill you and your family. But, you know, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> It's ugly. This is a subjective world. They see themselves as doing right. How do you stop them? In those days, there was no king to enforce right and wrong. And it's welcome to a world without truth, a world without a king, a world of subjectivity, a world that is, is not safe for the powerless, the weak, and the oppressed. Because there is no standard except what we want. And then, of course, the ugly ending is a, is a big reveal. Is who, who are the priests that are telling them that God is happy with them when God is not? Yeah, the Levite. At the center of the drama, it's Moses' great-grandson. That, that the same family that gave the law, that God gave the law through, is now at the very center of some of the most horrific injustices in the book of the in the book of Judges. Right. Just a good warning. Just because you have a, a good spiritual heritage, kids growing up in the church, you have to make your faith your own. Because otherwise you'll be a part of leading other people astray. Of, yeah. It can happen to anyone if it can happen to Moses, who was faithful in all of God's house. So how do you apply this one? Well, like I said, the Danites are showing us. This is, these are stories, so it's show and tell. This is how the Hebrews uh, communicated. This is life without God as king, even though God is king. The Danites give Micah a taste of his own medicine. Micah did what he thought was cool. He just took from his mom. Um, the Danites take from Micah because it works from them. It's brutal and animal-like, and if... And so this is what I really want you to think about because it'll help you talk with your neighbors. Nancy Piercy is a, a theologian. She says this. This is in your bulletin as well. She says, when, when moral convictions are just reduced to what we want, arbitrary preferences, you can no longer debate them rationally. All you can do is yell at each other. And persuasion gives way to propaganda. Politics become nothing more than marketing. Political operators resort to emotional manipulation. They use slick rhetoric and advertising techniques to bypass people's minds and hook their feelings, which should sound really familiar. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens in, in chapter 18. Power wins. That's the bottom line. Whoever is strong will dominate the weak. So what's the cure? What's the alternative to, to subjective... Religion, subjective morality, what's the cure to, uh, to healing this sleepless, unsmiling concentration on me? 
And that's, you only have one hint in chapter 18. And it's the last verse. You can look at it. It says, verse 31, they set, the Danites set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. It doesn't sound like much to our ears, but it's saying that there is a, God, a place where God dwells. It's real. He has a house, the tabernacle in those days. It's just a subtle hint from the narrator telling you that, um, well, the Danites made up their own religion and Micah made up their own religion. And just because they said God's name did not mean that God is actually with them. The house of God was at Shiloh, not with them. Because the tabernacle, the house of God, that's, that's where heaven came down in real space and real time. And God dwelt on earth with his people. It's the home of spiritual reality in the Old Testament, where real blessing comes from. The tabernacle is where right and wrong were to be taught by the priests, by Levites. It's where God is ruling and reigning as king, and his throne is the mercy seat which, you know, the shed blood of the lamb had to be sprinkled on it. A place where God forgives real sinners, a place where the Levites, the priests, were commanded to serve as mediators between a real holy God and sinful people. And the whole point is, if you know all that detail when you hear that the house of God is at Shiloh, um, it's telling you that subjective religion and subjective morality leave you cut off from the real God. You may connect to something out there, but it's not the creator of this world, the God of love and mercy who forgives our iniquities, uh, who casts them down into the depths of the sea, never to be raised again. It's not Yahweh, the Lord, and Jesus whom he sent. All right, so what's the cure? We need a, a real place as Christians to go to for spiritual reality, and that's, that's how I'm going to end here. And... Uh, it doesn't really, it comes out of looking for a tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle for Christians? Right? Where is true religion? Where is the truest truth? It's in Jesus. <laughs> and I know even as we, we talk about true religion, it, it grates against our modern ears. Because if, right, if you're older, this, this isn't that complicated for you. This, is, this just feels normal. And if you've been in the church for a really long time, of course Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's true. I've been reading the scriptures. Uh, you grew up in a time where there was a moral majority and Jesus was just part of the... If there was a God, we assumed it was him. <laughs> you know, to some extent. But in our secular age, which is rapidly taking over, our young people, this is where you live, where you go to work, this is where our neighbors... Everything about the idea of truth is completely subjectivized. And so, this is the world that Jesus came into. And I, I want to end this way. This is how our neighbors, and maybe you, see spirituality. Close your eyes for a second. Don't fall asleep. It won't be long. <laughs> We're almost done. Our neighbors see spirituality as this. It's just you alone in this room with four walls, and it's up to you to decorate this home in which you find yourself, which is you. That's it. If there's spirituality, you have to take the tools yourself and carve out a door to get out of this world, which is yours to begin with, to go connect and bring in whatever spirituality is out there 
down into your life. You can open your eyes. <laughs> right? Just feel that. It's just you in a room with four walls, and it's just me and myself. That's how our neighbors see the world. This is life in a secular age. And that's the world that our kids are living in, that you guys are going to grow up, like, talking to the young people, where it's up to you to figure out you, because you are all you know. The scriptures come and say there is a house where God dwells. It tells a completely different story. That there is a God who is infinite, eternal, almighty, omnipotent, wise, beautiful, true, and good, who is beyond our comprehension, who comes down to earth, and that's his desire to dwell with sinners, to dwell with humans, to dwell with us. And because we can't see him, we feel the same pressure as Israel of old. We want, we want an image we can touch. We want spirituality that we can relate to. And what God does is give us a true image and give us a true house, a place where he dwells. And that's who Jesus is for us. Because what God should do to human evil, to just ordinary evil, to us just ignoring him and, and invoking God's name and all kinds of things that he would not approve of, he should just leave us alone. That's why Judges, the end of Judges is so haunting. Because all this bad stuff happens and not, there's no rescue anymore. There was no king in Israel. No, but what God does in the history of the world we hear in John chapter 1, if you're in your lonely room of this world, heaven just punches a hole through the roof and comes down. Through the Son, Jesus. Listen to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Everything you see that is true and real was made through him. And without him, not anything that was made, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And in verse 14, the Word of God became human and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that John uses in, in verse 14 of chapter 1 describing God, it says God literally set up his house among us. He tabernacled among us. All of God's presence and power and wisdom and beauty and goodness came down as a person. That's why God said don't make any images because he knew he was going to send a son. The exact imprint and image of the living God. Right? See, Judges is trying to get you to long for that to be real. <laughs> that there is a God who set up a house, a tabernacle, a place where all of his presence dwells and you can see him. It's, it's, it's the son Jesus. To get you to long for this, this Jesus to be your king. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him is holding all things together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the firstborn, the beginning that in everything he might be preeminent, he might be exalted, for in him the very fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him then to reconcile us 
all things, whether on, heaven, on earth or in heaven, through the blood of the cross. That's where Judges is leading you. <laughs> is that there is a place where heaven broke through in real space, in real time, and you're not left up to your own, your own desires. Right. See, Micah thought he had to punch through and get God to bless him. It, it, it's always the other way around in the scriptures. It's heaven coming down to bless those who don't deserve to be blessed, including Jesus who died for us while we were yet his enemies in order to present us self-centered, self-obsessed people <laughs> to be holy and blameless in the very presence of this very real God. And so how do you end and apply this? I'm trying to get you to long for Jesus to be real. <laughs> and that's the promise. When you pick up the Bible, you are you're entering into a world that is much bigger than you and your wants. That he is the truest truth, and if you put your faith in this Jesus who died on the cross and rose again, and you're going to start to pray, God, your kingdom come, it's going to expand your world beyond your own wants and needs. You're going to be commanded to love God and love your neighbor. That's why Eugene Peterson says, when you open the Bible, you're entering the totally unfamiliar world of God. It's a world of creation and salvation that stretches endlessly above you something to be explored because you're exploring something outside of yourself and it's real that's what John is telling you the second the conclusion here shows us that subject the church is not immune from subjective religion Christians we're not uh, judges ends with spiritual disintegration uh, the, the way Israel is just starting to think like their neighbors and, and so this is calling us to see Jesus as the truest truth, the one who loved you and gave himself up for you, that heaven really did come down to earth, because that's how spiritual renewal starts. Right? If I can counsel non-Christians, and I've done that. And what I'll tell them is what Jesus has done and what he says about them. But you also have to add that this will only work if there's somebody on the other end of the, the phone line. <laughs> If there's an, a real God looking at you, talking back to you, and a, a real power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead to come and make you God's temple, because that's the whole point. If you put your faith in Jesus, you become the place in Christ where heaven and earth intersects. Your body is where God's spirit dwells. But for spiritual renewal to happen, it starts with Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the only thing that's going to change you, which means the diagnosis is real. My evil is much worse than I could ever imagine. But it also means his grace is real. I am loved more than I can imagine through this Jesus. Right. <coughs> so, this is the conclusion. This is the path for spiritual renewal and revival. It's a continual rediscovery of the power but also the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself bored as a Christian following Jesus, uh, you have to go back to these basic truths of John 1. Um, and what really what it's going to do for you as a Christian, it's going to deepen your awe. It's going to deepen your wonder as you look at the ugliness around you, as you look at your own selfishness. And those words, Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so, becomes a much bigger story than the one you could ever tell, tell yourself. Because 
when the Holy Spirit moves in. That's what happens by faith. And he dwells with you. It's not going to be a poisonous and bitter fruit that leads you to harm others because you're just doing whatever you want and they're not helping you get what you want. No, the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's not stubborn. <laughs> it's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's self-control. It's a Jesus-like way of living on earth. And your neighbors are going to look at you and say, who are you? How do you live that way? And you, you can point them to the truth. See, we follow Jesus as Christians who has really and truly made us God's temple. And now we're called to live in light of the reality that that is true. And that's what wakes me up in the morning. And I have to tell myself that story yet again, that this is my father's world. And that though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. That life is way much, way bigger than any of my preferences. Turns out to be freedom. Let's pray. Father, we looked at a, a weird story. And so I pray in all of this, we would remember that Jesus came and broke through down to earth to change us and save us from our wants. And so teach us as a church and as individuals to trust in the grace that you have given us in Jesus, but then also to learn to pray and to long for your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we fall in love with Jesus, may we become less stubborn. <laughs> Would you put to death the selfishness that is within us so that we might live big lives to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.